morning, good morning. How are you guys doing? Good, all right. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for watching online. Um, this is what we got going on today. I'm not a super big public speaker, but with the amount of announcements that we have today, it's like I'm going to be presenting a little sermon. So <laughs> strap in, buckle up. You're with me for a minute, okay? So the first thing that we're going to be doing um, for announcements is our youth ministry. So, yeah, woohoo, let's go. Um, I'm super excited for it. Uh, first things first, last week we had announced that there's a lunch after church today. Some scheduling conflicts came up, and it is no longer happening. So that is canceled. A little bit of a bummer, but this week was the start of school, and so that means our high school group is going to be meeting in two weeks. That's really exciting. And so getting that started um, for our high school students to make connections with their peers, with the adult leaders, it's going to be amazing. I'm super excited for it, and I can't wait for it to happen. So if you're going to be there, let's go. Um, so middle school, um, that's actually going to be starting here on October 6th. Um, that's going to be on Thursdays from 7 to 8.30. Jason's giving me the wild eyes here. Did I say something wrong? Okay. <laughs> so this is a little check-in. I'm ch checking in. I'm checking in. So... Yeah, Thursdays from 7 to 8.30 p.m. It's going to be here in the downstairs building. Um, I'm super pumped for that, too. That's actually a brand-new ministry um, at Brookview this year. And so we have a volunteer team. We have, and our numbers are growing already. It is, I'm like, whew, it is so cool what God's doing, and I'm super excited for that. On top of that, later in October, from the 21st to the 23rd, there is actually a youth retreat. Um, and we're going to be combining with a couple of other churches in the area. Um, a part of our denomination, and we're going to be going down to Auburn at uh, Black Diamond Camp, and we're going to have a great time. Um, it's going to be really cool for the students not only to build relationships for the first time at our own church, but even to um, just see and get to know other people from other churches. And I just think the leadership with Justin, it's amazing, so I'm really pumped for that. It should be an amazing experience. So that's what we got for youth ministry. If you're interested or you have any questions, you can fill out your communication card um, and type in youth ministry. So next one. So on top of our life or high school life group and middle schools uh, starting up, our actual adult life groups are starting up too here on October 2nd or this quarter. So our fall quarter is happening. Um, it's it's amazing. I love Life Group. I've been a part of one, and it is a life changer. You just get to meet with people consistently for a quarter um, and just live life together and kind of share that um, with each other. And actually, this last week, I'm going to share like a little short story just of how cool Life Group is. This last week on Labor Day, me and my dad have like a golf competition. And so we've been golfing like four times this summer. And it's coming down to our last The Match, if you know what that is. And so I'm going in with a two-stroke lead. I'm looking to win. And um, he invited his couple of buddies from his men's group, Wally and Daniel. And that day, instead of, I mean, if you know me, I'm super competitive. If you know my dad, he's super competitive. So you can just already tell that there is going to be some trash talk on the course, right? But Daniel and Wally, um, they show up, and they're part of my dad's life group. And... It was just so amazing to see their friendship and what they've just like built together over the last quarter or two um, during Life Group. And um, 
it was it was it was just like an experience that like the whole day was perfect, um, and the, you know dudes being dudes having fun. I just saw like how close they are and how close they're getting, and it was just amazing. And from that to be coming from a life group, I'm like kind of blown away. And <laughs> at the end of the day, at the end of the 18th, my dad sinks a putt, tied. We're tied after the entire summer. <laughs> So Wally and Daniel, being the supportive men's group that they are, they're like, okay, now you got to do sudden death, battle to the end. And so we ended up playing an extra hole, and my dad got me. You know, he crushed me. He crushed me. That's it. I lost it. That's what happened. So all that to say, um, amazing things happen at Life Group, and I would highly encourage you if you're thinking about getting um, to know other people and doing life with other people, it's an amazing opportunity. Next one. We got a newcomer's lunch. And I have notes on this because this is so much, so just bear with me. So newcomer lunch, um, if you're new to Brookview since the start of COVID, this is for you. We used to do these a couple of times per year, but this is the first one since March of 2020. Okay, I won't bring that up, okay? <laughs> so if you're new to Brookview in that time, this is for you. This is just a very informal time to meet other people who are new to Brookview and also get to connect with the leadership. Um, and leaders in the church. Um, lunch is going to be provided, and what we ask of you, if you plan on attending, please do uh, go to your communication card and RSVP, so that way we know how much food that needs to be there so everybody can, can be fed. And so, again, if you're new to Brookview, we've met some really cool people at the Newcomer's Lunch before, so I'd highly encourage you to go to that. And then, on top of that, we have a partnership class Yes, I know, I told you guys, it was going to be a long announcement set. So we have partnership glass. There's just a lot of good going on at Brookview. Partnership glass. This is an in-depth four-hour class taught by Jason, designed to give you a deep dive into what Brookview is all about. We cover things like our history, our mission as we see it, how things work around here, and how to get involved. It's a time to ask questions, and it's also a great way to meet other people. I've gone to two of those partnership classes, and it is four hours. Like, surprisingly, it is four hours. But it is, it's actually really cool because you get to see the mission um, and meet other people. And for me, it was, like, a little, like, inspiring or, like, motivation because, like, I can see the mission. I'm like, oh, like, I want to be a part of that. And it's just, like, really cool where um, you can see, like, behind the scenes of, like, where God is moving here at our church. So if you haven't done it before, I think you should go for it because you – have an opportunity to ask questions and really see how God is moving um, here at Brookview. And so that's really cool. Now, last things last is our communication card. So I want you to fill those out for anything, youth ministry, newcomers lunch, partnership class, any other questions. We also have a prayer team. So if you just need some prayers, go ahead and fill that out. Um, and so we, we can have that team pray for you. That's all I have this morning. So I'll pass that off to Jason. Trev, that was amazing. You guys think that was really good? You are so much more than a pretty face. 
But I'm trying to figure out the whole crazy eyes thing. Is it like angry eyes, like, get this right, dude? Or is it like insane eyes, like, they're popping. Oh, it's because I'm locked into what you're saying because you're dynamic, dude. You're dynamic. Well, welcome, you guys. Um, so we're in this series, Renewed Identity. And um, this is, we're just thinking about who we are. Because what you believe about who you are determines so much, right? It can free you. It can empower you. It can help you overcome all kinds of stuff. Or it can limit you and it can restrict you and it can set you up to struggle. Like how you see yourself, how you see your identity, it's a big deal. So we've been asking, what does God say about who we are? If who you are to him is the most important thing about you, then who does he say you are? What, what's valuable about you? How does he feel about you? Where do you stand with him? But if we look to Jesus to form our identity, then I think there's, there's something else. It's th another question that's, that's also really, really important. And the question is this, who is Jesus? I mean, if Jesus has real authority, if Jesus can actually show us the way, if he can teach us about the heart of the Father, if he can let us in on how God feels about us, if his teaching really is the best way to live, then what is his identity? Who is Jesus? And not just like, by the way, not just like the theological answer, like, well, he's the son of God. You know, he's the third person of the Trinity. He's God in the flesh. That matters for sure. That's really big. But also important is the more personal version of this question, which is, who is Jesus to you? What, what authority do you give him in your life and why? So today we're going to look at an amazing conversation from Matthew chapter 16. This is a very famous conversation that Jesus has. And we're picking it up in verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lo loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. You guys, there is a ton going on in this short little passage. Stuff that makes, I think, makes most of, most of us go, wait, what? So I, this is a familiar passage to many of us, but like, have you ever stopped and thought about what all this stuff means? It's crazy. So what I'm going to do, here's how this is going to work today. I'm going to spend about the first half of the message explaining what's going on here. And it's probably more like 60%. So if you're checking your watch and you're like, dude, this is the... Okay, and then in the second half or last 40%, we're, we're going to explore together what does this actually mean then for you and me? 
And so the very first thing that would jump out to a first century Jewish reader is where this conversation takes place. So Matthew sets the scene. It says, when Jesus came to the, the region of Caesarea Philippi, and I know all of you are like, oh, right? Like, no, for you and me, it's like, okay, next, whatever. Okay, but for a Jewish rabbi to travel to this place with his 12 young Jewish disciples, this was a very strange place for them to be. Here's why. Caesarea Philippi was about a two-day walk from the Sea of Galilee. So this was not on the way to anything. This was a very intentional, very out-of-the-way journey. And it was not a Jewish city. So it's not a part of Israel. Okay, it was pagan, which is not a derogatory term. It's just a technical term. It's just a, uh, it includes like the mishmash of religions and spiritualities that were all across the Greco-Roman world at the time. So this was a Greco-Roman, like pagan, you know, Greek God sort of place. Now, the name of the city, Caesarea Philippi, was actually brand new in Jesus's day. Um, the city was originally called Panius, but just a few years earlier, the city was given by Caesar Augustus to Herod the Great. It's like, hey man, have a city. And so Herod, in turn, gave it to his son Philip, you guys get this, for his 16th birthday. That's a pretty good birthday, right? Oh, hey man, what'd you get for your birthday? A city. I mean, nothing says privilege like, I got a city for my birthday, thanks dad. So, so Philip renamed the city Caesarea Philippi after Caesar and himself. Okay, but prior to that, the city was called Panius because it was home to the Greek god Pan. And the city itself was built up against sort of a rock face. We have an image. And so this is what it looked like in Jesus' day. And notice that the building on, uh, on the left is kind of up against a cave. Can you guys see that from where you are? So the, the structure was a temple. That structure was a temple for the Greek god Pan. And inside the cave was a spring that sort of formed into a modest river. So here's an image of what, that, what it looks like today. This is a modern, yeah, this is what it looks like these days. But the ancients believed that the spring inside was, was a kind of portal to the underworld. And they called it the Gates of Hades. So for the temple, let's go back to that image. People would come from all over to visit the temple of Pan, which was built right in front of the cave and the spring. Okay, now, Pan himself was depicted as sort of this half-goat, half-man creature. And like many Greek gods, he was famous for his grand sexual exploits. And I think that makes sense. Because he's super attractive, right, ladies? <laughs> I mean, let's go. <laughs> Turns out that, that Pan was actually a very promiscuous, very naughty god. And, and so was worship of him. Okay, so at this site, let's go back to the other. At this site, you guys, crazy things would go on. Like wild orgies and sacrifices to Pan and, and so on. So, so try to envision the scene. Jesus and the disciples outside this site, hanging out so Jesus can teach them. You guys, that's, that's like an Amish teacher taking young Amish boys to Vegas. 
I'm like, like this, this conversation is happening in the red light district, okay, among strip clubs and casinos and, and all the lights of Sin City. Like this is a very strange place for a rabbi to take his young disciples. What in the world is Jesus doing? Here's a little more background. In, in Greek mythology, Pan is the only god to ever die. And he died during the reign of Tiberius Caesar, so just before Jesus. So Jesus takes his young apprentices, his young students, his disciples, to the site of the only Greek god to die. Okay, hold on to that. Back to our passage. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, the, the Son of Man was Jesus, was like, it was like Jesus' favorite title for himself. And, and by the way, this is not Jesus like referring him to himself in the third person, you know, like, like Kanye. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, like who doesn't love Kanye? But Jesus uses the, the, this phrase in a different way. He uses son of man very deliberately. It, it's a phrase that's used throughout the Old Testament, and it, and it actually has more than one meaning, depending on where you're, where you're reading it. It's used in some passages just to kind of mean a prophet, but then in Daniel 7, it refers to a very specific figure, a figure that's both divine and human, and that figure is called the Son of Man. And the point is, if you're hearing Jesus in the first century, or you happen to be reading this today, and he calls himself the Son of Man, you don't know exactly what he means. That's deliberate. It's designed to get you to pay close attention and to think, okay, Jesus, who exactly do you think you are? Okay, verse 14, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So they just list off what they're hearing about Jesus as they travel around. And notice that everybody agrees at minimum that Jesus is some kind of prophet. But what about you, he asked. What do you, who do you say I am? He's like, Simon, what about you? James, Nathaniel, what do you say? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So, so Simon gives him two titles, and we're going to unpack each really quickly here. First is Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word that's translated Christ in Greek. Okay, so all 12 disciples were Jewish men, and they were trained to read Hebrew, and the Old Testament is primarily written in Hebrew, the ancient, like, like the ancient language of the Jews. And the word Messiah was a Hebrew word. But when the New Testament was written, this is interesting, it was actually written in Greek. Um, because Greek was the, by far the most prevalent language of the day, much like English is kind of around the world these days. And so to make the story of Jesus accessible to as many people as possible, the writers of the New Testament, like Matthew here, wrote in Greek. But here, Matthew keeps the Hebrew word Messiah. Okay, but just know this, Messiah equals Christ. It's the same thing. And by the way, it's a title. It is not his last name. He was not known as Mr. Jesus Christ. Okay, Messiah in Hebrew or Greek is just a title. And, or, and so there were prophecies about this king that would come, and he'd be sent by God to liberate and to restore the people of Israel. So by Jesus' day, as they were heavily oppressed by Rome, Jews were really on the lookout 
for the Messiah, the Christ. They believed that he would come and he would set Israel free from Roman oppression. And he would usher in an age of peace and justice and goodness. Now, nobody knew for for sure what the Messiah would be like. Some thought that he would be like a fierce warrior and he would muster up an army and they would go and, and defeat Rome. Others thought he would come more as like a fiery prophet who would turn the people of Israel back to full devotion to God and then God would liberate them from Roman oppression like he did Egyptian oppression once before. And so the Messiah would then kind of be this new Moses that would lead the people to new freedom. So there were different ideas about the Messiah. But the people were on the lookout for the emergence of of this man that they put their hope in. And here, Simon says to Jesus, I believe this is you. You are the Messiah. So you are the Messiah. And then he tacks on something else. The son of the living God. So think about that phrase, the living God. Remember where they are. They're standing out in front of the temple to Pan, the only Greek God to ever die. So this is likely Peter's subtle little dig at Pan. Peter's saying, our our God is living as opposed to the dead one that these losers over here are are worshiping. And so Peter Peter says, "You you are the living God's son. Now, it is very unlikely that Peter had in mind like a sophisticated vision of God as a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Like that level of insight, it didn't come until much later. But it does seem that he recognizes something very different in Jesus. It's like he's saying, you know what, I, I don't get this all yet. The math does not completely add up in my head. But Jesus, you have something that we don't have. You have some sort of mysterious relationship to the God you call Father, and we think that in some way, you share the Father's essence in your person. But this is a, this, this moment is a massive turning point in the, the Gospel of Matthew, because up to this point, and this is what's interesting, up to this point, as the reader, you are well aware that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. Matthew lets you in on that, like, right away in the Gospel of Matthew. Okay, but he's written it in such a way that, that even though you're in on the secret, as a reader, you, are, you understand that Jesus is more than like an, ex, you know, like an extremely brilliant version of a TED Talk. Uh, the disciples, they're not fully in on it yet, right? They're living in the story. They're trying to figure it out. They're on a journey. And so it's right here in this moment that they are awakening to the reality. Jesus is a rabbi, yes, but he is so much more. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. It's like, Simon, that that level of insight was given to you directly from God himself. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Let me explain three things. First of all, why does does Jesus call Simon Peter? What does he mean by the church? And what is the gates of Hades? So first, why, why does Simon become Peter? What's going on? And it's interesting because in verse 16, he's called Simon Peter, which is like a double name. 
Um, but that's actually the only place in Matthew, that's the only verse in Matthew where he has that double name. His, his name is Simon, right? And then later on, Jesus starts calling him Peter. Now, here's what's like significant about that. In the first century, Peter was not a proper name like it is today. Peter became a popular name for people because of the disciple. But in the first century, it, it wasn't a name. It was just like a very common noun. And in the first century, what did Peter mean? Rock. It just meant rock. So it, it wasn't the name of a male person. It was just, Jesus just calling him Rock. So, so another way to translate the statement is simply, you are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. So Simon's name isn't Simon Peter any more than Jesus' name is Mr. Jesus Christ. It, it's a title. It's a declaration. And it, what it does is it mirrors Simon's declaration. Because he says, you are Jesus the Christ. Okay, you are Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, yeah, that's cool. Well, you're Simon the Rock, Simon Peter. And here, Jesus is referencing Simon's unique role in the kingdom of God, the role that he will play in the movement of Jesus on into the future. So Jesus the Messiah is giving Simon a renewed identity. He's like, you got it. Exactly right, Simon. I am the son of the living God. I am the Christ. And I tell you that you are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Okay, so what is Jesus, what is he envisioning when he, when he uses the word church? Because this is what's hard for us. It's not what most of us envision 2,000 years later. The church is the movement of all who follow Jesus all over the earth through all time. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He didn't have in mind institutions. He didn't have in mind buildings. The church is all the people all over the world in all times who apprentice under Jesus to learn his way. In other words, to learn his vision that would bring light into darkness, that would bring heaven to earth. And just as darkness can, can never extinguish light, you notice that? Darkness can't really extinguish light. Only the opposite can happen. So whenever light and darkness come, to, come together, who wins? Light. Light wins every time. And Jesus says the gates of Hades will not be able to overcome this light. The gates of Hades, again, Greek idea of death and evil darkness. And Jesus is standing outside the temple of Pan, literally the gates of Hades, and the idea is that God, through his people, the church, again, not an institution or a building, but a movement of those truly learning the way of Jesus from Jesus and becoming like him, those actively learning how to do that will, will go and, and be light in the darkness and they will overcome it. I love the way uh, scholar Eugene Peterson paraphrases this passage. He says, you are Peter, a rock, this is the rock on which I will, put my church, I, will, I will put together my church, a church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. And Jesus continues addressing Simon, saying, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, so keys to the kingdom and authority of Peter, think a lot has been made of that over the uh, centuries. And sometimes 
Um, in our culture, sometimes you, you hear references to standing outside the pearly gates, right? Waiting outside of heaven for that moment where you find out if you're going to get in. <laughs> and, and who do we often say is going to meet you just outside the entrance to heaven? St. Peter. And it comes right from the words of Jesus right here in Matthew. And there are, you guys, there's so many references to this in, in our culture, right? And the idea is that before you go into heaven, you have to get past Peter, <laughs> right? And so there's, there's all kinds of modern references to this, and some of it's pretty, <laughs> pretty awesome. Uh, here's, here's an example that just came across recently. So, I don't know, you know, I have this issue, my, my, I can never remember my password and my username are never aligned and apparently that's going to keep people right out of heaven. <laughs> um, so, people have made a whole lot of Jesus' words, let me read them again. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In the ancient world... The master of a house or the king of a palace would give the keys to their top servant or their highest political official, and it was a role of honor. And that person would welcome people into the house. He had the honor of, of welcoming people into the, the, the home or the kingdom. And Jesus is saying to Peter, when it comes to the kingdom of God, in a sense, I am giving you the keys. Now, that does not mean that Peter is standing outside of heaven, and when you die, Peter will decide whether or not you get in. That is really bad theology. Um, it does mean that Simon Peter would welcome many into the kingdom. And you see this later in Peter's life, in his story in the book of Acts. After Jesus was gone, Peter stood in Jerusalem on Pentecost and he spoke about Jesus. And more than 3,000 people decided to follow Jesus that day, made up of the same crowd of people who had chanted crucify just a few weeks before. Later, in a pivotal moment in history, in the history of the Jesus movement, Peter welcomes a non-Jewish Roman soldier and his family into the kingdom of God. He, he throws open the door to this whole deal for non-Jewish people. Are you thankful? I'm thankful. I'm not Jewish. Is anybody in here Jewish? Rebecca. That's next level, dude. Yeah, that is holy. That's holy. So if you read the historical accounts, right, like Peter, he, he, he forever changed the, the movement of Jesus. And after, after that sort of thing breaking through, non-Jewish people then all over Rome, all over Gre the Greco-Roman world came flooding in to become followers of Jesus and, and to, to participate in the kingdom of God. And if you read the historical accounts, the first generations of Jesus' followers just shocked the Roman Empire. They did amazingly beautiful things to bring light into what, is a, what was an absolutely brutal culture. And the Romans had never seen anything like this. And many of them risked their own lives to join this movement. By the millions, they followed Jesus. It's crazy. 
But in a sense, when you think about it, Peter was like the cornerstone. He, he held the keys to the kingdom. He flung wide the doors to God's kingdom for millions and millions and millions. And his leadership and his insight were foundational. Okay, so back to our scene. Jesus ends the discussion in a way that's really odd. He just goes through this whole thing, right? Like, yes, Peter, you've got it. The kingdom has come. It's going to be Peter's. Gonna be and he and says, then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. What? That's weird. I mean, what a momentum killer. Like, Jesus doesn't understand leadership. Like, yes, I am the Messiah. Simon, God has revealed to you this great thing. God is up to something. In fact, if you knew how big it is, you, it would blow your mind. And you, Simon, are Peter, the rock, and the whole deal will be built upon you. You are going to be at the epicenter of what God is doing. Now, now, keep it a secret and don't tell anyone. <laughs> That's weird. But in Jesus' world, the idea of being the Messiah, it carried all kinds of political implications. Because in Jesus' world, there was already a ruler, Caesar. And Israel al already had kind of a sub-ruler, Herod, who was called the king of the Jews. To claim that Jesus was the Messiah, to claim that Jesus was the king, the ultimate king, was to claim that Caesar and Herod are just the imitations to which Jesus is the reality. That our primary allegiance is, is not to Rome and it's not to Israel or for us to America or to the Republican Party or to the Democratic Party or whatever, but our primary allegiance is to Jesus and the kingdom of God. And that calls into question every single power structure in the world. And that's why the moment that it comes out, Jesus is arrested by the political leaders in Israel and he's handed over to the Romans to be crucified. Now Jesus was up for that. And he knew full well it was coming. But at this point, his time had not yet come. He still had work to do. So he's just saying to his guys, hey, can we just keep the whole Messiah thing on the DL? We still have work to do. And once that comes out, the countdown to my death begins. Okay. Everybody breathe in and breathe out. That is a lot of explanation to bring clarity to the passage. What in the world does this have to do with you and me right now? We're getting to the last 40%. <laughs> the entire story is built around a simple question. Who do you say I am? In fact, very, very smart scholars point out that this is actually the turning point in the Gospel of Matthew, that it all hinges on this moment. Everything before Matthew 16 is leading up to the question, who do you say I am? And everything after is the follow-up to the answer, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And for Matthew, the author, this is an intentional attempt to get you, the reader, to allow Jesus with, with a gentle probe into your heart to ask you, who do you say I am? And this is a huge question because just like in Matthew's day, there are all sorts of ideas in our culture out there about who Jesus is. Yes? I mean, there's Jesus the wise sage. 
There's Jesus, the social justice warrior. There's Jesus, the political revolutionary. There's Jesus, the holy man in, in the class of Buddha or Confucius. There's a Republican Jesus. There's a Democrat Jesus. There's a military nationalist version of Jesus. You guys, there is even a vegan Jesus. <laughs> Everybody has a Jesus, right? But how you answer the question, who do you say I am, will define how you see God, and beyond that, how you make sense of the world. Your vision of God will shape you, even if you don't believe in God. Like, e even if you don't believe in Jesus as anything at all, you will be shaped by whatever it is you replace God with in your value system. So whatever you view as, as ultimate, the meaning and purpose of life. Even if you think life is meaningless, you will still come up with some sort of meaning because humans are meaning-making creatures. We cannot live without meaning. So you will be shaped by whatever you think the meaning and purpose of life is, if that's sexual expression, if it's individual autonomy and your own personal freedom, if it's wealth, if it's power, if it's success, if it's intelligence, if it's more and more and more pleasure or just going on amazing vacations with friends, whatever you think is meaningful, you will be shaped by that. The prophetic voice from the last century, A.W. Tozer, um, amazing writer, amazing thinker, once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. And Jesus came to show us what God is like. But do you look to him for that? Is your vision of God shaped by someone or something else? All too often in our culture, our mental image of God or our opinion about God or our thinking about who Jesus actually is it says far more about us than it does Jesus. And here's what I mean. Like if you go to Amazon, don't do it right now. But if you go to Amazon and, and, to, and you, you look for modern books on Jesus, you can find all kinds of books that, that reimagine Jesus, right? These popular books that are written within the last decade or two or maybe three and books that throw out some sort of alternate identity for Jesus. But, but here's... Here's what I've noticed about that. Like, if, if, you, if you get one of those and you read it, you actually learn far more about the author than you do about the historical Jesus. Here's what I'm saying. Jesus can just become another projection. Our own opinion, our own bias, our own desire. What we do is we remake Jesus in our own image, which is why we need Jesus to cut through our projections and meet us. Okay, but notice... Jesus doesn't show up on page one of Matthew's gospel and just announce to everybody, hey, I'm the Messiah. I am the son of the living God. Believe in me. That's not Jesus' style. He's much more subtle. He's much more sophisticated. Here's what he does. Jesus just goes around Israel doing Messiah things. He heals the sick. Who are you? Oh, the son of man. Well, who's that? Hmm, who is that? <laughs> hey, he goes around casting out demons, right? Just 
calming storms, feeding, walking on water, feeding, he's feeding people meals, like there's, here's lunch, and more lunch, and more lunch, and more lunch, and then it's like, well, who is this son of man, right? So he never just stands up and announces, hey, everybody, I'm the Messiah. He just does the stuff. He just does the things and then lets people draw their own conclusions. And in our world that's becoming so skeptical to spiritual realities, the great question for so many in our generation is, why doesn't God make himself more obvious? Why is God like, like the great silence at the center of the universe? Why is, why is God the great silence at the center of our soul? And you guys, there are many, many legit answers to those kinds of questions. Let me explore one really big one with you. In part, it may be because in the universe that God has chosen to actualize, love is the highest value. And love requires freedom and choice. Without freedom and choice, there cannot be love. That means you have to have the option to live in relationship with God and love him or not. And so most theologians argue that God veils himself. And, and it's not that God is playing hard to get or that he's distant and doesn't care about you. It's that if God were actually to come to you fully unveiled, he would overwhelm you. He would overwhelm you and he would overwhelm your capacity for freedom and therefore authentic love. And so God, out of respect for your human dignity, chooses to veil himself. God chooses to be subtle. He chooses to go around doing the things that only God can do and to, out of respect for your person and your humanity and your dignity, allow you then to draw your own conclusions. But there comes a time, and it's, it's not on page one of Matthew's gospel, it comes all the way in chapter 16, but there comes a time when Jesus will gently come to you and ask that question. Who do you say I am? <laughs> Somebody out there is not happy at all <laughs> with that question. It's upsetting, it's frustrating, it's confusing. Amen. Amen. Even for Jewish people, yes, Rebecca? <laughs> especially for Jewish people, as we read in the New Testament, yeah. God bless you. Look, some of you are, are, are you, you know, where you're at in your story, you're, you're very new to Jesus and to all of this. You are in the, the early chapters of your story and your experience of Jesus, and, and you aren't ready to respond to that question yet. So if that's you, I just want to say to you, we are so happy that you're here. I am so happy that you're here. Like, welcome. Come, check it out. Take all the time you need. Just follow Jesus around. Sit at Jesus' feet. Listen to his teaching. Consider what he has to say. To say. Speaking is hard sometimes. Try on his way. Try on his worldview. Like, try it on from the inside out. Hold it up then against any other religion or life philosophy or worldview. And then just, you know, see for yourself if it doesn't lead you to, to life far more than any other option that's available. 
Others of you, you've been doing this for a while and, and you've heard an awful lot and you've seen an awful lot already and, and you're ready for Jesus to ask you the question. You're ready for the like before and after sort of experience. And if and when you come to the same place as Simon, then you can say, hey, you are the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. As in Matthew's gospel, that, then that is, that's a before and after kind of moment for you. I had one of those and my life has, has not looked the same since. But what begins to happen in the interior of your heart are that all these things begin to shift. And so it just in the last couple of minutes here, now we're down to the last 3% or so, um, I just, I just want to highlight two of those shifts. I mean, the number of shifts that happen when we begin to really see Jesus, they're like infinite. I, I, they're deep and they're beautiful, and I could preach on just that for the rest of my life and never really scratch the surface, okay? But let me just highlight, quickly highlight two. When we see Jesus as Messiah, as the Son of the living God, uh, first shift is from fear to faith. I mean, ima imagine you're Simon. You're a young Jewish disciple of, of Rabbi Jesus. Can you imagine how scary a city like Caesarea Philippi would have felt? Again, envision a young Amish teenager standing in the red light district of, of Vegas, right, or Atlantic City or whatever. And then, and, and then Jesus looks at you as you're standing there and says, you are the rock. Who, me? Yes, you. And on this rock, I will build my church, my movement, and the gates of Hades. See that over there? The gates of Hades, all that, that's characterized over there in the Temple of Pan. The kingdom of heaven is going to invade earth, and the gates of Hades will not be able to stand against it. So you don't need to live in fear. You don't need to settle for mediocrity and defeat and merely surviving. No, you can have faith for the future. Faith has been defined as confidence grounded in reality. Jesus came to free us from fear because of faith that is grounded in reality. Jesus is not a figment of my imagination or a projection of myself. He is back from the dead. He's alive. He's good. He's involved in our, in our world, in our nation, in our community. He's involved in our church. He's involved in my family and in my life. And whatever comes or does not come, I don't need to fear because Jesus is with me. It's been said that the opposite of faith isn't doubt. Actually, it's It's fear. And it's so easy to look at the state of our world sometimes and just feel fear. Fear over the economy or fear over the divide in our nation or fear over the next election or climate change or whatever it is that causes fear for you. But fear-based living is, is lethal because it, it will kill life. Because as, as long as we are convinced that things need to go a certain way, that we, we cannot thrive or be happy unless things go as planned, then our futile attempt to maintain control over life will inevitably, we will inevitably manipulate people, bully, domineer, cheat, lie, scratch, whatever we have to do to get things to go the way that we're sure they have to go. And we then are not able to become people of love and people of peace. See, true faith enables us to break through into another realm 
where we live with freedom. Now, one way to frame the entirety of our spiritual journey with Jesus is this. It is a decrease in fear and an increase in faith. It's a decrease in, like, an anxious striving for control and an increase in the capacity to trust and live in the love and the joy and the peace of the kingdom of God. The spiritual journey could be described like this, just like a step-by-step, layer-by-layer removal of fear in your heart. Because people that don't live by fear don't need to control all the other people and the events of their life in order to be happy. We buy into a lie that, that things must go a certain way for us to be happy. Right? I mean, think about yourself. What are you afraid of these days? What, what do you feel like you have to have? What, do you, what have you convinced yourself that you cannot live without? And what if you're, you're wrong about that person or that thing or whatever? What if all the things I'm sure I need to be happy aren't actually all that essential? What, what if I'm in the Trinitarian community of love and joy and peace and the Trinitarian community is actually in me? And my home is not a dwelling or address or a country. What if, what if my home really is just in God? What if, as I abide in God and make my home in Him, I come to rest in Him? He abides in me, and He makes His home in me and comes to rest in me. And what if, no matter what happens, nothing and no one could ever take that from me? Not height, not depth, not powers or principalities, not the far left, not the far right, not this law or that law, not illness, not health, not marriage, singleness, not my my dream coming true or my dream not coming true and me experiencing failure. Nothing can take me out of the kingdom. And because of that, I don't need to fear. Friends, this is a a major shift that, that sort of comes systematically. It comes period. It just comes step by step with the before and after. When we, like Simon, have a definitive moment with the question, who do you say I am? And we can definitively say, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. Okay, so I said two shifts. Second one. First one is from fear to faith. Second one, from triviality to meaning. Again, we could talk about thousands of these. But let me just close with this. What, what if God is up to something amazing in our world? And And what if God has a significant role for you to play in it? And what if nobody else can step in and play your role? I mean, think about Simon. He was was a lower-class fisherman from nowhere special. He, He was not an elite from Jerusalem or Athens or Rome. He didn't have, you know, like he didn't arise from a highly cultural or intellectual hub. And yet... When he gave his allegiance to Jesus, he became the rock. He was given a role to play in the movement of God on earth. Now, we have to be a little bit careful here. 
Because, like, in our Western culture of individualism, we can take a story as beautiful and profound as Peter and Jesus and the church and then just make it into a trite little story about me and my future career. But, but in the story, Jesus, he, he doesn't really go around like a good millennial parent. Like, he doesn't make sure that each disciple has a title and a role. Right? He's like, Peter, you're the rock. Nathaniel and John are like, what am I? <laughs> he doesn't go around making sure that everybody has a nice little title. He doesn't make sure that everybody gets a trophy. Just like, Peter, you're the rock, and on this rock I'll build my church. Right? But then he's not like, he doesn't go on from there and go, and John, John, you're the tree. <laughs> and on this tree I'll grow my plums. <laughs> Thomas, Thomas, you're a reed. You're a reed that bends, and I will take this reed, and I will weave my basket. <laughs> right? Now, Peter is, Peter's unique, right? Peter, Peter has a role to play that you and I don't. But, but still, Peter is an example of the kind of thing God does. He comes to ordinary people, and he calls them to a significant role in repairing and healing the world. And this is available to every one of us. It is on offer to every one of us. Now, we may have to redefine significance or, or meaning, right? We will have to use the metrics of Jesus and not our culture, not the metrics of Hollywood or Wall Street or whatever. And so that's a really important piece in the equation. I don't get to decide what success and what meaning is and then make Jesus fit into my vision. But if you come to the place that Peter did that day in Caesarea Philippi where you say, you are the Messiah, you are the son of the living God, then Jesus is saying to you, man, that is awesome. Because I have a role for you to play in the healing of our world. Follow me, learn from me, and fill your life with meaning and significance. Keep looking to me, keep really looking, keep learning, keep growing, and I will show you step by step, bit by bit, what to do next. And by the end of your life, you may be shocked at what I've done through the totality of your life. By the way, it's, it's always interesting to me when I talk about God's calling with people, like over coffee or whatever, this, this one thing happens. People start thinking of God's calling on their life as the one big thing they're going to do. Oh, yeah, I know God has something big for me. It's coming, Pastor. Good luck. I, I actually don't think that's all that helpful. Um, because what happens is when you have this vision that the thing that God is going to do through you is just this magnificent, world-changing thing, and it's, it's out there somewhere. It's, it's going to happen, and when it happens, you're going to know it, and the world will be forever changed, and you will be forever changed, and the angels are going to sing, and it's going to... Here's what happens. When you're waiting for that, you just let the ordinary, everyday moments where there's an opportunity for real impact just let them pass by. You're like, you're waiting for the big thing. Well, that's not the big thing. Helping this guy, that's not the big thing. Loving my spouse, raising my kids, being great with my coworkers at work, being a great neighbor, contributing to the flourishing of people all around me. That, no, it's got to be like, no. It, listen, there may be something big, and I, and I hope there is. 
But what can happen is then that we're sort of just on hold waiting for something. And for, for many of you, there's, there's something about your life right now that is absolutely not what you would have it be. And if you're waiting for everything to come together for you, if you're thinking that, that you, you're going to be used by God one day, like when you figure things out or, or your circumstances finally change, then what happens is you can miss all like millions of moments that are right in front of you every single day. If Jesus is the Messiah, if he is the Son of God, if he is exactly who he claimed to be, then God is exactly the picture that Jesus painted. And no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, God loves you. And he's good. And God is actively bringing his kingdom to earth. Justice, grace, love, equity, beauty, inclusion. And he will use you in millions of ways if you let him. Your life, if this whole Jesus thing is true, your life can matter in ways that you'd never dreamed. Peter was faced with a question that led to a pivotal life moment. Who do you say I am? It's a question that can change everything if you let it. Father in heaven, I thank you that we are not left to just sort of meander around earth trying to figure out what matters and what human beings are supposed to be and who you are and how it all works. You've not left us to just sort of look at nature and figure out all of that stuff, but you, you sent your son into our world to show us that stuff. Our, our vision of you comes to us most clearly in the life and the example and the teaching of Jesus the Messiah. And God, I pray that you would help us to see Jesus as he really is. Because all of us can, all of us can create our own version of Jesus and then worship that. I pray, God, that you would help us to, to see the real Jesus, to continue to study scriptures, to continue to live in Christian community and ask questions and, and grow and change and have our, have our mind expand to understand who Jesus is because that Jesus is the one that will set us free. God, would you help us? Amen.